They tell us that there are now 7 billion people on the planet. A billion of those claim to have no affiliation with religion. They're the skeptics, the agnostics, the atheists. A billion claim to believe in many gods, the gods of Hinduism, like Ganesha, that has a little pudgy boy's body and the head of an elephant. Do you think such a being exists? There are over a billion people that claim to worship Allah, which they claim is the same God as the God of the Bible, but that is disputable based on the fact that the Quran has God saying and doing things that the God of the Bible wouldn't say or do. Two billion people claim to be affiliated with Christianity, half of those Catholic. And interestingly enough, right here in our own society, the statistics, the polls show that there are still a majority of Americans that believe and profess belief in the God of the Bible. However, Such a profession is meaningless if a person lives as if there is no God. And you know, the fact of the matter is, in spite of the fact that most Americans still profess such belief, may I suggest to you that we have had such hurricane force philosophical winds that have swept across our civilization for 50 years now that have ridiculed God, that have ridiculed the Bible, that have just gradually chipped away at the foundational belief system of our civilization, that even though there's still widespread profession of God, may I suggest to you that most Americans' sense of the presence of the reality of God has been significantly eroded. And consequently, I believe it's necessary. I believe the Bible teaches it's necessary for us to go back and reacquaint ourselves with this God and make certain that we we possess our belief in Him with strength and certainty. We don't want our young people walking away from from their childhood with doubts. Because when they go to that university, you can be assured there are those there who will prey upon those doubts. Can we know? Notice the underlining of the term know. Is this a matter of knowledge? Or is it merely a matter of, well, that's what I think. That's what I've chosen to believe, but I can't really prove that to you. You know, you study your Bible from one end to the other. No bona fide representative of God ever took that position. I believe God exists, but I can't really prove to you that's the case. I just would urge you to choose to go that way. It's a better life. That's not the people of the Bible. They stepped forward even in the face of skeptics and polytheists and atheists and adamantly affirmed this is a matter of knowledge. You can know this. You know, Jesus himself was that way. Do you remember what he said in John 10 when he was confronted by a number of individuals that challenged his identity, his divine identity? He said, look, if I do not do the things that verify, that prove who I am, don't believe me. 
Can you imagine the Son of God ever saying to anybody, don't believe me? But he did. Because God would never expect human beings to just flip a coin out of all the different belief systems. If we can't figure out which one's right, just flip a coin and hope you pick the right one. That's not God. God's fair. And therefore, he's given us adequate evidence. May I suggest abundant evidence that proves he exists. That he has, in fact, communicated to the human race in written form. In only one receptacle, that's our Bibles. And therefore, we not only can know that he exists, that the Bible is the word of God, but that he has only one religion, what the founders of our civilization repeatedly called true religion. And therefore, that the church of the Bible is the only appropriate avenue through which to approach this God. These are all things we know. Most of the people in this assembly are here this morning because you believe these things. May I urge you in this series to to come, if you're not, to where you stand up with certainty and say, look, we know this is the case. We don't want to offend those who don't know and don't believe, but we want to be able to approach them with certainty and say, you can know this. This is something you can ground your life in because it's the only reality ultimately on this planet. Isn't it interesting that God chose, when he created human beings, to reveal himself through two central avenues of expression? One we call special revelation, that's the Bible. There are things that you cannot learn anywhere else about God except in the Bible. You wouldn't know to be baptized unless God told you that. But God has also revealed himself through what we call natural revelation, that is through nature, through the created order. He's the creator So you would expect if he created something for that object to reflect his glory, to to show its maker. And that is certainly affirmed numerous times in scripture. You know, the psalmist put it this way. If you look out at the universe, that's clearly his uh, meaning of the term heavens, plural, because, uh, you know, in scripture there are three heavens and He's talking about beyond the planet, our atmosphere, and then beyond that, the entire universe, looking at the cosmos. Can you, does that communicate anything to you? Well, the psalmist said, it shouts the existence of God. It shows his handiwork. And notice, this is 24-7, day unto day, night unto night, is revealing, look once again at the term, knowledge, not uh, wishful thinking possibilities, even probabilities. No, this is knowledge. And notice that he says there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It doesn't matter whether you're in China and speak Chinese, whether you're in Russia and speak Russia, or way down in South America speaking Peruvian. God is communicating himself to all cultures, all countries, 24-7. If they care to examine the evidence... You say, well, if it's that blatant and that obvious, why aren't there more people that accept it? Well, because from the beginning of the human race, the perennial problem of humanity has not been its ability to arrive at knowledge. Adam and Eve knew God. That didn't stop them from sinning. Why? Because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. That's the situation we're all in, you see. We can know God exists. We can know the truth on all of these matters. 
but mustering the gumption. That's what the Bible calls faith. The willingness, exercising your volition, your will to trust God and to go with it. There's the real battle that you and I are in every day. Paul made this same point, I believe, in Romans chapter 1. When he said that we can, there are things, he's speaking of the Gentiles, but that certainly applies to all of us. In fact, all of us are pretty much Gentiles, aren't we? There are things that can be known about God because he has revealed it. He's he's expressed this to the human race, and this has gone on since the very beginning, the creation of the world. You can't know everything about God, but you can know some things, some of his invisible attributes, like the mere fact that he is divinity and that he is omnipotent. You can know that. Evolutionists are wrong if they look around at our planet and the universe and say, well, this could have come about accidentally by mechanistic forces through millions of years. That's an irrational conclusion to draw. Oh, no, this created order requires a creator who is all-powerful, far beyond even our imagination. How can we know that that is the case? By the things that are made. The things that are made. I believe it behooves us to take some time to look at some of those things that are made. Since Paul said, this is one way you can know the Creator. That you can actually acquaint yourself with Him. Take, for example, this uh, species of tree, the lodgepole pine. The shaded areas show its major growing areas. There's some in the United States, but most of it is in Canada. Here's what's interesting about this particular pine tree. You know, pine cones are seeds that are held together. This particular species of pine tree has cones that do not open at maturity, as you would expect, because there is a glue that holds the seeds together. You know what it takes to cause that bond to break and release that seed? Temperatures between 113 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. That's what it takes. Pray tell, why is that? That shows design. Here is a picture. And notice that these millions of seeds then are being held in reserve, literally waiting to serve their purpose following a forest fire. Here is Yellowstone. Remember there was a massive fire back in 1988? Here is a picture 10 years later. And even though the dead trees are still standing, the the forest has completely reseeded itself. Now, I want an evolutionist and atheist to explain to me why a pine cone would wait to release its seed until certain temperature. You know, there must have been a lodgepole pine convention millions of years ago. They must have gotten together. You know, these forest fires about to take us out. We've got to do something. So they passed out Elmer's glue to all of the lodgepole pine. You think, you know, is there sentience going on in these trees? No. They prove God. Cannot be explicable on any other grounds. Ponderosa pine, another tree that as it grows older turns kind of yellowish, its bark. But notice how it develops this kind of a plate-like structure. It almost looks like a jigsaw puzzle. They're plates that form the bark of the tree. Here's what's incredible. When a forest fire occurs and the tree catches fire, these... uh, puzzle pieces of bark pop off. It literally sheds its burning bark, making it capable then of uh, 
surviving low-intensity forest fires. That just happened? There's a mind behind such design, a mind greater than ours. You remember when God created everything at the beginning, the six days of creation, he alluded a number of times to seed and its role in the created order and how everything produces after its kind. Well, guess what? Seed is unbelievable proof of God. By the way, young people, you could, if you go off to university somewhere and pick one thing to study, let's say you want to become a, a botanist, and you, you couldn't, in your lifetime, you couldn't study everything there is to learn about botany. So you pick just one species, you know, one plant. You, you could spend your entire life studying that one plant and its intricacies and never reach the end of knowledge on that. Think about that. That's how much proof there is of God. Wish we had more young people doing that and writing articles and flooding our society with proof of God, calling people's attention to how this could not have been designed. Look at how God chose to disseminate seed on this planet. Through animals, you know, if an animal eats a piece of fruit or something, flies to another location, you know, goes to the strawberry patch, eats strawberry, goes somewhere else and releases through his system that seed in another location. That's going on constantly around us. Birds are constantly going around reseeding our world. Water takes seed to other locations where things do not grow and they begin growing at that location. But look at this, this means of dispersal by which uh, the wind takes seed all over the place. Take, for example, a, a plant that I'm sure everyone in here respects and appreciates when you walk out in your front yard after working with your grass and you see all these little white plumes. You think, oh, glory. <laughs> but here's what's amazing. Take a second look. Take a second look. This is an incredibly designed structure. This beautiful plume is actually composed of individual umbrella-like canopies of intricately branched hairs connected to a stem, and at the base of that stem is a single seed. This little structure has what we would call parachute design, not that it, it found out, hey, parachutes work pretty good, we're going to do that. No, the parachute came after this design. And it's incredible how God created this in order for it to function the way he intended. Wind pulls these seeds from that plume and then disperses that seed to many locations. You know, we look at something like that and, and pass it off, move on with life. Notice how it's pulling it out slowly. Look at the aerodynamic design of this thing. As it floats through the air, it is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Based upon its flight diameter, based upon the proper length of the stem, all of this is just right. It creates a center of gravity that allows it to catch the wind properly. If that stem were shorter or longer, it would lose its dynamic aerodynamic capability. So it's designed to travel and then to plant that seed in some other location. There's no way to explain that except there is a maker that created that object. It shows proof of a higher mind. 
Here's another type of seed. But notice the seed contained within a sheath is attached to what appears to be a wing. Now, why would you do that? Why not just let the seed scatter itself? Why would you place it within this sheath that constitutes an aerodynamically designed wing? You think that evolved? That just happened over millions of years? There's no mind behind that if there is no God. So it would not have come into existence, even if evolution had a mechanism by which it could even occur. It could not have produced such an object. Here are some, uh, some seeds, fruit from Thailand. They call them whirling nuts because of their capability to fly. I'll show you how that operates. But here's a really incredible one that's from the Malay archipelago. There's a single seed surrounded by a papery thinned what appears to be wings. You know, it's as if a child made a little paper airplane that was designed to fly. Five inches across, packed inside of gourds that grow, the vine grows high in the trees, the forest canopy, and uh, these, these gourds are packed with hundreds of these, what you might call stealth bombers. Once they are airborne, uh, released from the gourd, they sail through the air like, like a glider, like it was designed to do that. Don't you wish we could go to the Malay archipelago and see this? Well, through the miracle of YouTube, you can. Here's a gourd high above the forest floor, packed inside of these gourds, these incredible seeds. At certain times, obviously designed by God in terms of time and everything, they are released. Now, if you and your child, let's say you had a six-year-old child, Hold, held by the hand, you're walking through the forest, and you see this. You walk in there and you see that. Would you not, first of all, you'd immediately look around and say, who, who dropped that? Who threw that out there? You would immediately think somebody's behind that. Now, that six-year-old who's not grown old enough to have a, an agenda like adults, when, when that child saw that and you tried to reason with that child, do you, do you think this maybe just happened, maybe if given enough time? What child would say, yeah, that makes sense. Here are the the, uh, seeds that have the wing that's designed to almost function like a helicopter. We have these here in Montgomery, don't we? And when they drop from the trees, it looks like there's just all these little flying devices that are... Notice it didn't take two, two wings, it's just one, and it works just right. Here's the spinning nuts from Thailand. If you saw that, walking through the forest, you saw that, you would think somebody made that. All of this clearly a manifestation of God. No wonder in Isaiah 55, after making the point that God is the one who produces seed, there is a far greater seed that makes even that incredible seed pale into insignificance And that is the word of God that will not return void. There is the seed that, uh, when planted in honest hearts, has an incredible effect. How many of you remember when the USDA announced to our country that wood cutting boards are dangerous? They can harbor uh, bacteria that can be deadly. Ladies, did any of you listen to that and get rid of your, your wood cutting boards? 
cutting blocks? Well, guess what? I mean, it's rare for the government to be wrong, but they missed that one. They missed that one. The best research suggests otherwise. I spoke with Dr. Cliver several years ago now. I think he's, in fact, retired. He was working out at UC Davis on this very topic. He was in uh, food microbiology, obviously a very qualified and capable individual for what he does. And here's what he concluded. He said, as a matter of fact, wood has what could be described as antibacterial properties. Think of that. He and his uh, laboratory associates took five of the most deadly bacteria known to man, E. coli, salmonella, staph, introduced those, inoculated four plastic polymers and ten different wooden species. Here are seven of those that they chose. Here's what they found. Within three minutes of inoculating the wood boards, 99.9% of the bacteria became, and these are, this is his word, unrecoverable. He didn't say they were killed or they died. They became unrecoverable. They, they in essence, disappeared. However, none of the bacteria on the plastic died. And when they left the bacteria out on those two surfaces overnight, the bacteria on the plastic surfaces grew. They increased. Whereas that on the wooden surfaces uh, were completely gone. And here is what they speculated, although so far as I know they've not yet proved it, and he's retired and probably won't pursue the research. He speculated that there's something about wood that draws harmful bacteria down into the fibers where it's of no further threat. That's what he speculated. That it was neutralized and eliminated in that fashion. Bacteria and knife scars on plastic boards, even after a hot water and soap wash, remained viable. (laughs) By the way, I presented this about a year ago on my daughter-in-law, I noticed that in the house, uh, my daughter-in-law had no more plastic boards. They had all been, I don't even think she gave them to Goodwill. I think she threw them away. Treating wood cutting boards with oil or varnish or finishes retards its natural ability. You're interfering with what God designed when you do that. Is that incredible? And they are mystified as to how this occurs. They don't really know the mechanism or the agent by which these antibacterial properties are able to assert themselves. They're mystified. Well, that's because you're talking about God's design as opposed to mere paltry man's thinking. No other way to explain that. By the way, isn't it interesting? God dealing with the Israelites told them under the law of Moses, which contains a number of highly advanced medical sanitary regulations that far exceeded any of their contemporaneous neighbors. He said, if you, uh, one of your pieces of uh, pottery that you've made, your earthen vessels, if you infect those or get some sort of a discharge, you destroy them. That's it. You're going to have to go turn on your potter wheel and make some more. But any of your wood receptacles, you can rinse those and keep using them. No explanation given. Moses simply said that to the Israelites. 
well beyond its theological implications of purity and so forth. Why would God say that that about that? And I would suggest to you, Moses, if we'd ask him, hey, Moses, why'd you say that? I'm sure he would say, well, because that's what God told me to say. But why? I doubt any Israelite could have explained that. But we now understand it. Here's one of those uh, deadly bacteria, salmonella, a single cell. Notice uh, connected to its body are several filaments. They call them flagella. These little babies rotate synchronously at 200 to 300 cycles per second, rotating swiftly. If you were to trace one of these flagellums to its source beneath the surface of the uh, membrane of the cell, you would see what is clearly intended to be, in terminology of our day, an engine. It is a motor, and it's attached to a sort of a hook that functions very similar to our universal joint that took millennia for humans to figure out. And then attached to that universal joint or hook is the actual flagellum filament. If you were to show this picture to any child and ask that child, was this designed and created by someone Or did this just maybe come about accidentally over time and various non-sentient forces operating upon it? Maybe the weather, maybe some lightning got involved. What would any, any rational child say? The Japanese have done a great deal of research on this item because they think it has a great commercial potential. But this, is, this isn't made out of plastic or metal or wood. It's made out of protein. And yet it possesses parts that indicate design, intention, function, purpose. Once again, uh, here is, a, I guess this is an electron microscope uh, picture of this nano, bio-nano machine and its ability to assemble itself. It begins with an MS ring formation in the cytoplasmic membrane. I got this from the Japanese. Then a switch complex called a C-ring is assembled on it, followed by the protein export apparatus inside the ring. Protein apparatus, that is, the protein cells are going to come out of here and grow the filament. So these are flagellar proteins from the cell body to the distal end of the flagella, which grows then the structure. So in other words, when one of these are yanked out or something, it'll re reassert itself, grow this little engine, and then proceed to develop the universal joint hook, which then protrudes up outside of the cell. They have identified these proteins, HAP1 and HAP3, and then it forms a capping structure on top of the hook, the filament cap, they call it, that consists of five They look like legs with a flat surface. Then notice how the molecules come right up through this um, tube from the engine itself and begin to grow the filament. So they come right up the central channel and then assert themselves sequential. Even the sequential insertion of these molecules shows a mind. Uh, 
sequence is a product of logic, of rationality, of thinking. God is a spirit. God is spirit, John 4, 24. He's rational. And that's one of the ways in which we've been created in his image. We have the ability to think and to reason rationally. 20 to 30,000 of these molecules build a 10 to 15 micrometer long filament, each one capable of that synchronous rotation that enables, to, to, uh, enables the salmonella to generate thrust and cause it to move. Similar to man-made motors, since both were built by minds that share in common certain characteristics and qualities, look at even the terminology they use. A rotor, stator units, switching unit, bushing, universal joint, helical screw propeller. <laughs> that couldn't have just happened accidentally. All of these are parts. This thing rotates at a speed of up to 20,000 RPMs faster than the speed of Formula One race cars. In other words, this engine is, is more efficient, more capable, superior to any engine designed by man. You get all the professors in the world together, all the engineers apply all that brain power, and they've not been able to do anything like this. But this didn't come from mine. This just happened over time. Well, then we ought to just get rid of all of our schools and just kind of let things happen naturally. Because this is a lot better than anything that humans have produced. Anybody that takes that attitude, even if they have a PhD from Harvard and are the top evolutionists in the world, that person's infected with blind prejudice. They are irrational. They clearly have an agenda that causes them to want to believe such nonsense. I suggested to you we could literally take the rest of our lives, we could take a thousand lifetimes and never, never plummet the depths of the knowledge that God manifests about himself in the created order. None of these objects have sentience, intelligence, consciousness, no creative capability. These things do not create themselves. They're complex, intricate, rational, purposive, marvelous design. Demands an all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite God. And the only deity known to man, and humans have conjured up a lot of them, the only one that fits this, the evidence, is the God of the Bible. No wonder the psalmist said, praise the Lord, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you stars of light, praise him, you heaven of heavens, you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? Because he commanded and they were created, literally. Psalm 33, 6, he spoke, he commanded, and it was done. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Let me show you one other thing in the time that we have. Symbiosis, this isn't hard for us to understand. You know, scholars and intellects always come up with these highfalutin $5 words. But uh, there's not really that much that you and I can't understand. God understood that when he communicated his will to us. Are there perplexing things in the Bible? Sure. But there, you have, what do they say, a sixth grade education can ascertain enough from the Bible to know what to do to be saved and to live saved. Symbiosis is where two species, plant or animal, depend upon each other to survive. Each gains benefits from the others. They're both needed in order for the other to survive. So they, they work together. They have to be together. 
Well, notice that that proves God. It proves that the account that we have in the book of Genesis about creation week is absolutely accurate. If those days represent millions of periods of time, then symbiosis could not occur. These uh, species that depend upon each other. Take, for example, your mouth. Here's proof of God right here. Don't need anything else. They have discovered, as you move down microscopically to your tongue, get right down to the bottom. They have discovered that living within your mouth are more than 700 distinct bacterial species. Now, you have many, many of each of these creatures in your mouth, but over 700 that differ with each other. They're not the same species. You know, you would expect a race ride or something in your mouth to have that kind of diversity. But it works right. Now, first of all, how did these 700-plus species come into existence in the first place? How'd they all end up in your mouth? And how is it that they work together, function together, and provide very critical purposes in your mouth? In fact, I've concluded that mouthwash, human invention, is probably an interference with what these little guys are doing. That kind of complexity, that kind of diversity, that's proof of God. I don't care how many millions and billions of years you want to postulate. That could not happen. Those had to have been designed to be there. Plants and animals that need each other to survive would have had to have come in close come into existence close in time to each other. They most certainly could not have been separated from each other by millions and billions of years. Take, for example, the fact that God created plants on day three and then created birds on day five. Let me give you a little information about this. The dodo bird, which is now extinct. Want to shed any tears over that? The animal rights people do. Only known location of the dodo bird, the island of Mauritius, Mauritius, off the coast of South Africa in the Indian Ocean. First sighted by Europeans around 1600, the dodo became extinct within 80 years. Also on that island is a particular species of tree that is very important to the local economy, the Tambalacoca tree, which in 1973, it was determined, discovered that they were dying out that there were only 13 trees left. These were very sickly, not expected to live any length of time. These experienced Mauritian foresters reported that these 13 were all very old, in fact, more than three centuries old. The elderly trees were still producing seeds, but they wouldn't germinate. So they would take them into nursery conditions and tend them and pour over them. They couldn't get them to germinate. So they finally appealed to an American wildlife ecologist who proposed, after his study of the matter, a very interesting theory. Again, I contacted Dr. Temple. He's now retired from the University of Wisconsin. Back in 77 in the prestigious Science Magazine, he wrote an article on the matter. And he, uh, he went about it this way. He said, all right, going by the age of the final trees. We haven't had any trees since then. The only ones we have left are over 300 years old. Something happened in the environment at that time that altered the balance of nature. Well, the dodo bird we know went extinct by 1681. That was right about that time. So, 
early explorers um, who left us information about the dodo bird didn't leave much. So he really couldn't find any database to study the dodo bird. They did say that uh, they, they fed on fruits and seeds. So uh, he postulated that uh, maybe this tambalacoca tree had some connection to the dodo bird. When you look at one of these seeds, it looks similar to an avocado. It has essentially three parts, about two inches in diameter. But the external uh, layer is hard and uh, thick. No, the, the outside layer is thin. But he knew, he, he, he thought, you know, there are some seeds that won't work unless they're processed. Many times through a, a bird that has a gizzard or some other anatomical part that enables it to process the seed. Because the grinding of that gizzard can erode just the proper amount of the hard pit so that the seed within can pass on through the bird and then plant itself. By the way, that right there is design, is it not? And no evolution there. Well, how could he test his theory? You know, no more dodo birds. They're all gone. So he reasoned, well, there is one bird that's known to be as dumb as a dodo. So he enlisted a flock of turkeys, uh, gave them the seeds. Some of the pits made it through, ground down by the turkeys' gizzards, and a few actually sprouted into tambalacoca trees. The first in three centuries, as far as they could tell. Incredible. The dodo bird received sustenance by eating the seeds and leaves of the tree. The tree was perpetuated by the bird's gizzard, scratching its seeds as they passed through its digestive system. Well, then those birds and plants had to come into existence close in time to each other. That's proof of the 24-hour days of Genesis 1, and it's proof of a higher mind, a grand designer, who established these matters. We have just a moment for me to give you one other example before our worship begins. Birds uh, established day five, reptiles on day six. I think I'll show this to you in our next lesson together. Thank you for your kind attention.